Storytime with Andy and Amanda. Right, Amanda, what are we doing today? We're doing story time. And don't ask me to name what episode it is because I can't remember. Ten? Uh, <laughs> I'm not organised. Ten? Nine, ten? Yeah, Hello. that's good. So, it's really useless. Anyway, of course, Andy and... Amanda Nicholson. What is story time, Amanda? It's just what it says on the tin. We'll go around and tell stories or poems or extracts. Yeah, and what do we have, who, what do we have today, then? We have a special guest. Yes, we've got the wonderful gentleman. Oh, oh, yikes. I'm trying to remember. We've got the wonderful Peter Humphreys with us now. Peter, how did we first get talking? I can't remember. <laughs> hi, uh, hi, hi, guys. It's great to be here. Yeah, I think we've had a few, you know, it took, it took a little while, didn't we? Because I think Amanda read and reviewed my book and, and yeah. very, very kindly. And then later on, um, I was doing my podcast, I do the first impressions pod, and that's that's when we had a chance to have a really good chat. I think we've been, you know, we'd had that connection originally. And I think like with a lot of the writers in the Northwest, there's, there's definitely links there, aren't there? Yeah. Between us all. And I'd been to the uh, the night at Dulcimer, you know, way yeah, speak back. easy, of course, yeah. Of course, people are wondering, yeah. So yeah, yeah. brilliant. Yeah. But now, Peter, obviously, you better tell people what your novel is, first of all. You have, we've hinted at it already, haven't we? <laughs> Sure, yeah, yeah. Well, the novel, the novel I, I, my most recent novel is Hong Kong Rocks, and that was published by Proverse in Hong Kong. It was out over there in 2019 and here in 2020. And um, that's a sort of uh, a thriller set um, during the, some of the, the sort of political and social turmoil that's happening over there with, with some comedy elements as well. So I'll read a couple of bits of that. Um, I'm also a, a short story writer and you know, like yourselves, do some podcasting, not as prolific as you guys, but I, you know, <laughs> I found that a really good way of connecting with, with other writers, yourselves included. And at the moment, I'm, um, yeah, I'm working on a couple of things, short story collection that I'm going to be releasing with my wife, Anna Rebuchedo, who's an artist and illustrator. We're going to publish like a, a little short story collection together of South American stories. But I think for the first um, thing I'll read will be from my novel in progress, which is called Adrift. And um, that's a sort of, uh, yeah, it's another another thriller. It's a sort of sprawling, um, you know, adventure set over, you know, several decades from way back in the 80s, right up through COVID to the present day. And I guess the themes would be on... Um, you know, enduring uh, love and and friendship, and and how that changes through the years, and uh, and and loss as well. But again, I think it's got quite a light touch to it. Um, so it's set on the Wirral where I grew up, and I've invented uh, the town of Monkton to to represent one of the kind of sleepy seaside towns you'd find on the Wirral. But in this case, um, and this is this extract from the eighties, there's been a murder in the town. Um, but the narrator must be about nine years old at this point, and he's just walking home from school with his friends. Uh, so I'll read this. So this is from chapter three of Adrift. Johnny doesn't ask to join us when Craig, Mal and I start walking home together after school. He just starts walking next to us and follows us when we turn into the alleyway behind Parade Drive, even though his home is the other way. We're going to see Anubis, Craig tells him. Craig is my best friend. He has blue eyes and light brown hair and wears little round glasses like John Lennon's before he was killed. OK, says Johnny, taking off his tie and stuffing it into his pump bag. Dad's forgotten to pick me up again. They won't miss me. 
We look down at the cobbles as we walk. The sand doesn't mess up the back alleys like it does the pavements, so we get a clearer sight, but there's not much happening today. A few cigarette ends, but they make your hands smell when you rip them open to look at the yucky cotton wool inside. We see the 10p, some rich kids super glued to the ground years ago and shake our heads sadly. When Johnny sees it twinkling, we nudge him away so he doesn't bend down to pick it up and look stupid. Crab apples hang from the crooked branches of trees poking out of back gardens, but it's only worth picking those if you need something to chuck at an enemy. How do you know where Anubis lives? Johnny asks. My sister told me, says Craig. She says there's a lot of Egyptian stuff buried round here. On the Wirral? Johnny asks. Yes, Craig insists. Where do you think the mummy in Moncton Museum came from? I don't know, says Johnny. Egypt? Here we are, says Mal. He's bigger than the rest of us with broad shoulders and a square head. His hair is blonde and messy like straw. He has grey eyes and a couple of dark moles on his blushy cheeks. His dad is teaching him how to play cricket and do crosswords. We stop in front of the lamppost. We check the graffiti made with compass points. It hasn't changed. Everton with a line through it and then LFC at a 45 degree angle to the side. We look up. It's still too light for the bulb to be glowing orange. Okay, so now we ask him a question, I say. Still not sure about Johnny being with us. If he tells his class about this, we might get laughed at. But Johnny doesn't look like he's taking the mickey. He looks serious like the rest of us. That's what Anubis does to you. How does he answer? Asks Johnny. We come back later, I explain, when it's dark. If he's shining brightly, it's a yes. If he's all faded, it's a no. I see, says Johnny. Can I ask a question? Craig winces. Shouldn't we ask about the murder? He says. All that stuff will be in the paper, Johnny tells him. It's true. Paper boys dump copies of the Gazette in all the hidden places we know. We'll be able to find out the gory details soon enough. Okay then, I say, and we all move forward and grip different parts of the metal lamppost. Then we start to shake it. You have to close your eyes, Johnny, says Mal, or it won't work. They are closed, says Johnny, angrily. Harder, says Craig, and we all put our backs into it. Soon we hear the rattling inside the lamppost, which means Anubis is home. The rattling is the sound of him waking up. You can ask your question now, Johnny, says Craig. We carry on shaking the lamppost while Johnny steps back and takes a breath. The rattling grows louder. My hands are beginning to ache. Hurry up, I say. We haven't got all day. Okay, says Johnny, quietly at first, then making each word stronger than the last. Anubis, he says. Anubis, can you hear me? My question is, will mum and dad get a divorce? We let go of the lamppost, opening our eyes, panting, sure that Anubis has heard us. Craig, Mal and I smile with relief, but Johnny has a hard look on his face. I think about his question. Anubis knows everything. It probably doesn't matter that the rest of us don't know what a divorce is. Wow, considering Peter and what you've been telling us off mic before, uh, it's still a work in some degree, but you'd probably say in flux and some degree. That was incredibly vivid. What yeah, do you think about really that? I could picture that. Yeah, it felt, and I'm, I'm asking Amanda's opinion this before I ask you this. I could see a lot of you in that, I could. I think, yeah, great writer, you have to have some element of you in this anyway. What do you think, Amanda? Yeah, I thought so. 
Brilliant stuff, mate, with that. So definitely good luck with that. Definitely. Oh, it was tremendous. It really was. You made life hard for me in Amanda now to follow my fourth no. dog. No. It's downhill from here. <laughs> no, no. No, great start, mate. Good luck with the book, definitely. I look forward to reading the rest of that when it comes out straight away. So, right, That's okay. Yeah. Now, um, obviously, people know with story time, it's usually we take going like around circles. So normally it'd be me. Me, then maybe a man after, and then back to Peter. But we're going to do a duet to start things off with today because we were over in Blackpool last week for a short break. And when I don't know what you're like, Peter, but whenever we go away, we usually try and do something creative. We do, and don't we, man? Yeah. We'd, uh, we went down to Scarborough back in April, and both came back wrapped with loads of poems and bits of flash fiction. But what we decided to do in Blackpool was try and write a couple of flash fiction pieces, though, as duets. So we wrote three and we did two of another one on top of it, which wasn't a duet. But this first one is Amanda. Go on, tell people what it was about. Um, well, if I tell you what it's about, it's going to ruin it, isn't it? Well, there's a context probably needed for explaining, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's so. probably best explaining afterwards. Yeah, okay. What we'll do is, you know, we wrote um, this one's called Locked Out. Well, it's by actress, perhaps, yeah. Thomas could not believe it when he got to the side entrance, only to discover it was locked again. He looked up at the sky and thought to himself, for God's sake, not again. What are you doing out here? Marsha interrupted his thoughts. They hadn't lived together long, but Thomas usually arrived home first and was crashed out on the sofa watching football by the time she got back from a long shift at the restaurant. I think they've locked us out again, he answered. Either that or that lock's broken. This happened last week too. Thomas looked again at the lock. Who locked us out? Is it the housing association? Did you forget to pair the vent? She fired off each question without giving him time to answer the previous one. No. I pay them on time every month, I'll have you know. I only paid them two days ago, his words stumbled off. You've not been having all-night parties again, have you? I don't have all-night parties. Why would you say that? Well, what the F happened on Sunday night? He looked at her a little annoyed. I went to work like I always do. Then I came home and you were sprawled out on the couch surrounded by beer cans and one of the cats was pleading to be fed. If anyone had an all-night party, it was you. I can't be asked arguing with you, he pointed at the lock. Do you have any idea how we're going to get in? I used to do jujitsu. Maybe I could kick the door in. But you're paying for the repairs, whatever this is, Marsha pointed to the locked door. I'm pretty sure it's your fault. Thanks a friggin' lot. Always blame the bloody man. Go on then, do it. We're going to have to sleep in the alleyway otherwise. Marsha began to stretch as if preparing for a workout. Then she ran and swung her leg at the door. The door shuddered. It remained locked. Marsha fell to the floor, clutching her leg and howling. Thomas barely held back his laughter. <laughs> bloody pathetic. Not that I could have done any better. Are there any side windows open? I don't know, Marsha said between sobs. I think my leg is broken. I need to go to the hospital. You'll have to drive me. In <laughs> what? He tried lifting her up, only for her to howl even more. You know I don't have a licence. Those bloody cats. What do the cats have to do with any of this? And what happened to your licence, or your car for that matter? They took it all away. Thomas held his head in his hands. They said it wasn't proper. Said us humans don't deserve to have a tenancy agreement either. Have you been drinking again? Are you actually saying the cats took your licence, your car, and took over your tenancy agreement, Marsha asked? 
Yes. What kind of world are we living in? He looked down at the ground. Why would they do that? She asked. Thomas looked down as he mumbled something. What? Marcia stared at him. I said, it's revenge, because I went away on holiday for two weeks and locked them out. You did what? Marcia snapped just as Thomas's old car pulled up, driven by his five cats. They meowed at her, but alongside Jiu-Jitsu, Marcia also spoke fluent cat, so she understood them perfectly. Yes, I would like a lift to the hospital. You can't leave me locked out, will you? Thomas whined. I can, and I won't be back either. I couldn't possibly stay with someone who treats his pets so horribly. Then she turned and hopped into the car before it was driven away, much to the confusion of the drivers in the other cars, who had to look twice to make sure they really had seen a car driven by cats. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I can re I could relate to that with um with us leaving Lucy away here when we went off on a holiday. Oh yeah, the oh. revenge, the revenge of the cats. <laughs> <laughs> That's what that point was. But it's actually what happened with that Peter wasn't this is for our viewers listeners. Our two two dear friends of theirs have been looking after a cat from one of the neighbours after it, they actually went away on holiday for two weeks to Spain, I believe they told us, didn't they? Yeah. And that locked the cats out on purpose. Oh. So, oh, I see. So it's outside the whole time. Yeah, four fingers outside, oh, and it's left to. They, 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 the cat's clever. He went around miming our two friends of food every day. But we did it as a kind of revenge piece, man. Yeah. Didn't we really? So, so that was the inspiration. That and a couple of drinks in the pub, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah. Well, how, how, I was going to ask, how did you do it? Did you both write? Did you just kind of pass it on to each other then? across yeah. the table to write the next bit? Like? Yeah, that's what we did. Yeah, I with Mandu was writing a bit on the phone. And I have a tablet on me, so and she wrote part one. I did part two. Then went back to her to do part three. We merged them together later on and edited it down. So wrote it in about, about 40 minutes, is it? Yeah. Yeah. And then the edit, I don't long have a man it took a man to edit it, probably an hour. So yeah, yeah it, was good, it was good fun. It was good fun. So fantastic. Very funny. Okay, Peter. That's our first the first round over. Back to you, mate, for piece number two. Oh, right. OK, then. Well, I'm going to read from the, the novel that's out, Hong Kong Rocks, yeah. as mentioned earlier. And uh, I'm going to read a fairly short extract based around running. And, and I was thinking, um, I do quite a lot of running myself. And it's, there's sort of a link with the writing. I noticed in the new novel as well, I've included some running scenes. Uh, so I think it, it pops up in my fiction a lot. And, and I think it also pops up, fiction pops up when I'm running as well. You know, I think it's something about the rhythm, <laughs> of, you know, pounding, pounding, you know, in this case, down by the canals and the river and like the rhythm of writing. So I get I get ideas popping up and often I don't have a, a pen and paper and I don't take my phone with me. So maybe I'll have to go into Sainsbury's and grab the little pens they have for the where you can write your own messages on the board and like <laughs> pull down a few ideas. Because I'll be like, oh, this is great. This is great. But anyway, this this is this is set. It, you know, this is basically Nick, the narrator of Hong Kong Rocks, watching his estranged wife, Lennox, uh, running or hashing, they call it over there, when you're running through the countryside. And this is after he's actually faked his own demise. So he's, he's looking down at her. So, um, yeah, uh, Hong Kong Rocks. I have to remind myself not to be surprised on seeing Lennox's long limbs bursting out of the shiggy terrain in the valley below. All that pent up energy and frustration fermented on the long haul back from Latin America, compounded in some hostile security hub in the States, had to find an outlet somewhere. 
and wasn't part of the hashing code for these drinkers with a running problem about catharsis and recovery, more often from the weekend's excesses, but perhaps also from the unexpected death of an estranged husband. On, on come the distant cries of her fellow hounds as they crush another chalk-marked arrow underfoot. Forward, forward, for the living, where else is there to go? For members of the undead, like myself, a more circumspect view may be taken. Here in limbo, there is no need to exist in a narrative straight line. I can amble through the past, present and future without fear of messing them up any more than I have already. At the same time aware that even small actions and events resonate indefinitely and our perceived histories are as much subject to change as our fragile futures. For example, the tall, pale woman with the ensnared red hair in the white vest, Squeaky Bum, to give Lennox her honorary hashing name, must once have had a settled rear view of me and her as lovers, romantic in our way as we flopped into bed together, as easy in our interactions as two old soldiers in a familiar foxhole. Likewise, her future imaginings, like mine, must have hinged around a leisurely continuation of a love that would prove all too easy to take for granted. Inevitably, those memories and projections have since changed within that distant, bobbing cranium. To what extent and in what ways, I do not know. But the fact remains that hashing codes and ancient rites aside, the woman I love is out there, tearing up the Saikung countryside, instead of sitting at home, weeping over what was and could have been. Oh, God, that's really good again, that. Yeah. Now, Amanda, you're really familiar with this book, aren't yeah, you? Yeah, so... I read it, yeah. I'd reviewed it on a few different platforms. <laughs> As you do, but yeah. I'm, I'm going to ask you, Peter, then, obviously, when you talk about novels, like, obviously, Hong Kong Rocks and the forthcoming book, have they yep. both been very different novels to write so far? Um, they have in, in some ways. I think... Um, I'm going, you know, I think the good thing is, is, you know, working with an editor with Hong Kong Rocks and, you know, it was quite a sort of intense process and not always easy, but I think I'm more aware of sort of the planning side of it now and how to, you know, how to maybe construct the novel. And I guess it also, I, again, I'm, I'm trying to sort of combine humour with a thriller element uh, in, the, in the new book, Adrift. Um, so I think, I think that's sort of become what, I'm probably going to do or, or perhaps what I'm best at um so yeah it's been it's been different in 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 some ways but I think I've got a a better idea now through that experience and like with Hong Kong Rocks I'm about to print it all out you know 200 odd pages and then get my pen out and start going through it and crossing things out and adding things and that's part of the process I, I do quite enjoy and, and did enjoy with Hong Kong Rocks Good. Well, uh, love, love forward hearing more of it, man. That was excellent stuff. Really, really good cool. stuff. That's so, is there anything you need to add to mm -hmm. Right. Well, on to poetry now. So, uh, ladies first, and I've just seen what piece this one is, and this is a direct insult to me. This next one, Peter. Yeah, this is dedicated <laughs> to Andy, who loves his man bag. <laughs> it's called Inside the Man Bag. He told her to get his wallet while he held the drinks. She reached her hand inside the man bag. Cautiously at first, then rummaging, knowing he was waiting for his wallet, grabbing like an arcade machine, her arm sinking deeper into what felt like an empty space. Then before she knew, she was free falling, hurtling down like a fairground ride into the depths of the man bag, lost in the darkness. 
and assaulted by lost iPods, forgotten Kindles, and keys that slipped through the lining. She was battered and bruised, but somehow made the ascent, her nails tearing at the fabric. She dragged herself over the edge, forgetting she was clutching his wallet. He smiled at the state of her, asking where she had been. She flung the wallet at his head, unable to describe, speak to describe the horrors that lurked inside the man bag. <laughs> See, this is what happens, Pete. I'm sure you know when you're married to a fellow creative person. They frequently have a go at you sometimes. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> That's it. It's all, all's fair in love and art, isn't it? Yeah, you just said it all out. <laughs> true, 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 true. Now... Uh... Oh, I do like that one of yours, man. That, that one's unpublished, isn't that? Seems to have Yeah, it? it's never been published. Nobody wants to publish it. I can't understand why. <laughs> <laughs> it's the universal, the man bag. Have you got the man bag there, then, is it? Is it, is uh, it I there? can show it, yeah. It's over there. So it's, it's in the kitchen. It's in the kitchen. So <laughs> it's not... OK, infinite, infinite man bag. Enjoy that lot. Right, OK. Uh, something a bit different now. My poem of the month is from... My forthcoming book, actually, and I've got a book out. Well, should be, should have been out by now, but the long story short, for both Peter and Amanda's own, and I'll have you as is. It's an American magazine called Mocking Owl decided to accept three of my poems just before I was about to bring it out. So, the basic result was I've had to delay bringing it out while they go through what they're doing with it and what's happened is with it is um, the book the magazine should be out at the start of next year so when they come back to me on it i'll then be able to release the book as well so it's just kind of what they're doing they're editing it so so this is the first poem they've come back to now and where they've edited it so the book is about my struggle with diabetes and this one actually was when just after i got diabetes back in 2011 i returned to work after being ill for a few weeks and I, I had quite a bad time at this job, not the current job, but the job before. So this is called Return to Work. The return to work was the hardest, when it felt I'd been gone years, when in reality I'd only been gone little more than three weeks. And people who had hated me for a good 18 months looked like they were in mourning for somebody who died, realising everything had now completely changed. <clears throat> Pardon me. Unsure what to say, I must stand by my desk, not sure what to do, every time chocolates were passed around the team, outlining changes in both my and their lives, mistaking my diabetes for something else altogether, unaware this could have so easily happened to them. Mm. That's why it's not not cheerful piece, but <laughs> it's very, it's very powerful, yeah, yeah, yeah and relatable, isn't it? Yeah, it's congrats a teacher, on it's, the, Congrats on the publication. Cheers, mate. It's, I believe it's February, January, February next year. So they've got the when I've got the three pieces back of them. It's a case of Peter, if you know what I mean, with the poetry stuff. If I like the edits they've done, it'll come into the book. <laughs> sure, yeah. yeah. But first, first one's great, so no problem with that. So, right, mate. Back to you now for what's it? Your third piece. Third piece. In fact, me. Well, yeah, third me, piece. I'll, I'll do it. I'll do a third one. Thanks. Thanks again for the chance to to share these. This is also um, something that's not been published yet, but um, this is an extract from the old fossil, which is one of three quite long stories I've done set in South America, and this is the book that me and Anita hope to release together. 
uh, hopefully in like really nice kind of bespoke, you know, packaging. And, um, you know, I don't know how many will print, but we want it to be to look really nice because it's going to have a, her illustrations printed in it as well. Do you have any, any um, ideas when this is coming out, Peter? Yes, or you're not sure yet? We, we don't. Anita's actually working, it was like you, you two working in Blackpool. We're, we're going to go out this afternoon, I think, and, and I'll have my notebook and Anita will be sketching. And she's sort of developing ideas for the characters uh, that are in the stories. And But we're probably realistic looking at next year uh, for, it, for it to be printed up. Um, so it's a bit of a a labour of love. Um, one of the other stories, Justice, is the one that was short, long listed for the, the BBC Award, the Short Story Award last year, which I know I'm, I'm always banging on about because <laughs> I, can't, I, can't, I still can't quite believe it. But, uh, it's a very big thing. Bravo. <laughs> 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 yeah, but that, so that's, yeah, one, one of those in, in it. And then, But anyway, this, this extract is from another story called The Old Fossil. A lot of the stories are looking at sort of how South America, Latin America has often, you know, been exploited by Western companies and, 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 and Western powers. Uh, the old fossil uh, is this story. And the old fossil himself is, a, is a, a British guy who's visiting Patagonia right down south in the deserts. And uh, he's working for a kind of company that's looking for natural resources to use, you know, which, is, of course, is, you know, to, to help us with the energy situation back home. But you know, there's a lot of companies looking at how they can um, sort of exploit the resources in, in, in South America for their own ends. But after he's been taken by a family to, to, to a beach near a reservoir in this uh, desert area, uh, they've had a picnic, but there's been this terrible kind of misunderstanding or situation has developed. And now David, the old fossil, looks like he's gonna be abandoned um, in the desert. And I'll just read this short bit, uh, which takes place at that time. So this is from The Old Fossil. Paralyzed and helpless and unable to do more than watch the family folding up their camping chairs and dismantling the gazebo in silence, David experiences a strange kind of anticlimax when he realizes that Mauro isn't going to beat him to death. Of course, his fevered mind concludes, there is no need when he can just leave him here in the dunes with the other old fossils a missing person on a misadventure, another Brit who went exploring and didn't come back. Naturally, the company would try to find out what happened to him, but ultimately he is replaceable. There are no doubt younger, hungrier prospectors waiting in the wings. Soon after they have left, he recalls a new story he read earlier in the year about a man who climbed inside a life-sized papier-mâché dinosaur to retrieve his lost phone. There, he found himself trapped and unable to attract anyone's attention. The report didn't say if the man had been able to record some final thoughts on his device before he died. David has a brand new smartphone, but there is no reception out here and he has no urge to type a confession or apology or anything in between. It occurs to him for the first time that his dead father's mantra matches that of his long-term employer, admit nothing, deny everything. In death, he would be fulfilling his father's legacy and protecting the company. And there was surely some comfort in that. A lone dune buggy rags around the circumference of the beach a last time, bouncing up and down on the sands as night sets in. David looks on tiredly. It brings to mind the moon landings sped up. It is a strange place to die. Another planet only with enough oxygen and water for everyone.
really vivid again that Peter definitely and it's like I'm looking really looking forward to seeing this book between you and your wife on this because it's like that was really for me and that was, you had no man in agreement so yeah. you've left plenty of scope for your wife to actually really interpret her emotions on the art to go with that so it's it's going to be a yeah. fantastic book. So, oh, thank you. We're definitely going to order one, mate. Yeah. Without that, I think there's a fact to that one. <laughs> no danger with that straight away. So, <laughs> tremendous stuff, mate. Good luck with it, definitely. So, right, cool. okay. Conscious of the time now. We better move on, of course. Now, so, right. Um, do you want me or you to come next? Oh, I can go for one. Ladies first. Then. Okay, this poem's called "Fire Sale." Everything must go. Sell your old phone. Sell your old CDs. If you're one of those people who still listen to CDs, sell your books so it might be worth more to use them to keep a fire going. The money-making list said sell your old clothes. But when I'd sold everything I didn't use, I sold my new clothes and walked around naked, making it impossible to put on another jumper in winter. But they said sell everything, sell anything. So my hair was the first to go, <laughs> followed by pictures of my feet for those with a fetish. I hacked off my arm to sell on the black market and used a butter knife to cut out a kidney before I sold the butter knife, then claimed I had nothing left. But those smug money-making lists kept on repeating the mantra, sell what you've got, sell what you don't need, sell some more and keep going. It's a fire sale and everything must go. She worries me, Peter, frequently she does. <laughs> Fantastic, very trademark dark. Dark, dark, dark humour. Oh, <laughs> what made you write that, Amanda? Just so people know. There's like all these money-making lists and it's just saying like sell books, sell this and like sell pictures of your feet on these websites and it's just getting to the point now it's just getting a bit ridiculous. That's why I said Yeah, we've got monetise. Everything's about money, so. Okay, um, uh, the one I'm going to do, Peter, is this one's actually brand new and I'm not even, hopefully it's a scan right. Um, I think, do you know I'm actually been writing unintentionally a book at the minute on the Martian invasion of Earth? Oh, no, I don't know about this. Yeah, he knows something we don't know. <laughs> it's like right, very right. surreal little one-page stories. I've done about six of these so far by chance, right? So uh, this will give you a clue of how surreal it's getting, okay? the um, This one's called Martians in Argos. <laughs> Helen was left surprised, then stunned, when the order came through and immediately rang up her supervisor, Matthew. Are you sure about this? It's okay with me, Matthew yawned. It's for 500. I've processed larger orders, Matthew responded. 500 lawnmowers. Helen's voice climaxed with a huge sigh. <sighs> They've cancelled. Clearly ordered an error, Matthew laughed. Daft Oh, God, Helen got in. Helen, Matthew's tone changed. They've reordered and increased the order to 2,000 lawnmowers. Who cares? We've got the stock as long as they pay. They want to deliver it to us to deliver it to Mars. Matthew laughed. Just take the fucking payment. Whoever ordered will ring us up in a few days with the correct address. Three angry Martians turned up two days later wanting to know where the lawnmowers were. <laughs> Ace. <laughs> so it is. It was just the way them go. They're not, it's one of those things there. But you know, you know, you write some things, Peter, as an accident and sequencing. That's what I've done. I've done about six of these, and people are asking me now. 
when are we doing a book on him? <laughs> well, it's got to the point now where some people we've just met are saying, does he ever write anything that's not about Martians? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny, I've got my Kurt Vonnegut t-shirt on today, so a lot of his, you know, it's a bit of a tribute to some of his surreal sci-fi, maybe, but oh, yeah, what are they going to use the lawnmowers for? <laughs> Brilliant. Oh, thanks, Peter. Okay, mate, on to the last piece of the day, then. Back to you to take us out, mate. What have you got to conclude with? Okay, I'm going to read another bit of uh, Hong Kong Rocks, available on all the usual etceteras. And um, I'm going to read a bit where Nick, the narrator, he believes he's been kidnapped by Chinese agents. And this is mainly dialogue, this section. And I just think it's something I, I, you know, at the heart of the book that I wanted to explore, which is sort of, you know, political ideological discussions that are going on all over the place. And, and this is obviously in the Hong Kong Chinese context um, and the sort of splits and divides we've got in our societies. And uh, it takes place, uh, yeah, as Nick is being transported in an SUV by these two suspicious characters who've, uh, who've picked him up. At least once I'm in the back of the SUV, sweeping past water buffalo on the sleepy roads between the prison and Moi Wo, we're free to speak bluntly. Are you agents? We prefer to think of ourselves as deniable assets, says the woman who's driving. You're in denial, that makes sense. Don't try to be clever. You've tried that before and it hasn't worked. I appeal to Specs. You can at least give me your names. Panda, he pats his chest, and that's Salamander. I watch an ageing buffalo tottering along the roadside towards the sea. It's not a useful image when you're trying to suppress laughter. Panda detects my mirth. You can laugh. Believe me, we love the British sense of humour. Looking for the fun in everything, especially in your language, the language of Shakespeare, no less. The language you've used so eloquently to justify your wars throughout the centuries. But sooner or later, beyond the satire, I recommend you visit the plain and simple facts. You live on Chung Chow. Christ, did the interrogation start here? Yes, I told him. That's no secret. Not anymore. Have you spoken to anyone on Chung Chow about the future of Hong Kong or indeed its past? Anyone from the local population, I mean. Haven't had the chance. If you drop me off at the ferry pier, I could happily... Perhaps you don't realise that the community there, the ancient Chinese fishing community, is much older than Hong Kong itself, that the ancestors of your friendly locals were forced to watch the colony grow, had to accept the ships that clogged up the harbour, the plundering of their natural resources, had to give up their migratory way of life, living on the water and following the fish stocks from island to island in return for colonial housing designed to keep them in one place so they could be taxed by the British more easily. That wasn't me, I remind him, any more than you're responsible for the famines under Mao. And you British expect to live here without contributing to the culture when immigrants moving to the UK are expected to earn, what was it again? £35,000 a year? Salamander nods. And learn English or else risk expulsion. You think it's fair that because your descendants colonised this small part of southern China, you can live here, get drunk here, have your junk parties here, treat our women like whores and seek your fortune while learning fewer words of Cantonese or Mandarin than a Chinese toddler knows of English. Rant over, Panda turns back towards the windscreen. I don't disagree with him, how can I? What I can and will object to is being fed rhetoric while child locked into the back of a fun-sized SUV 
and heading for where exactly? Surely a guaylo faking his own death is worthy of no more than a slap on the wrists and a one-way ticket to London. Nothing in my resume would appear to justify deportation to the mainland, but in these troubled times, who knows? Excellent stuff, Peter. Great way to take us out today, mate. That's really, really good. Thank stuff. you. I feel, I feel like I've been on my soapbox a bit. It's quite a lot of politics. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> you easy done, mate. I'm going to realise now. <laughs> anyway, Excellent, mate. You. No, it's been a pleasure today. Now, you on again, as always, mate. With that. Just to clarify, obviously, people who don't know you, yeah, Hong Kong rocks can be got on Amazon, can't it? And all the all the usual booksellers, can't it? So that's right. Yeah, and and you can if if uh, people can follow me on um, I'm down as the Word Diver on Instagram, and I kind of post news about my writing there. And uh, I have got some books from the publisher that they shipped over here. So I can, if people are interested, I can I can send them a book directly. Uh, it's on Amazon and Bookshop.org as well and uh you know other other uh, places online so um yeah it's out and available brilliant great stuff good luck with the new books mate definitely with that one so people are wondering you'll be definitely you and you hopefully get you and your lovely wife on for spoken label when the next book's out definitely with that so that brilliant we'd love, love to meet your wife definitely mate and we'll make sure i have this one with us and mandarin well won't we so mm. we're ready so right peter hang around obviously because we want to wrap up now this before we get going and we'll go for, we'll go for a couple of quick things before we wrap up. So, right, Amanda. Bye. Story time with Andy and Amanda.